morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse sixteen. This morning we'll we'll be studying from verse sixteen to chapter six, verse two. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse sixteen. Therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. As as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Chapter 6. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on that day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity that we have to come in this nice building to hear your great word. May it uh, take root in our hearts. May, your, may you be more glorious uh, in our minds as we study your word. Thank you for this time in your son's name. Amen. In every situation in life, there is an appropriate response and an inappropriate response. If you were at home and your house was on fire, and you see all things around you burning, you see the smoke, and you're gagging, the appropriate response is to get out. You understand why that is, because if you don't get then you die. The inappropriate response would be looking at the flames and say to yourself, I'll just hit the snooze button. I'll wait. I'll wait till tomorrow. If you were a parent, and you saw your child running towards a cliff, knowing that at the end of the cliff is just falling and could lead to death, you would not just let him or her run. The appropriate response is to chase after them and to grab them, to snatch them away so that they will not perish. If you were a student and you know that there's an exam on, say, Wednesday, and you, and you know, okay, I don't know this material, I need to study it. The appropriate response is to study, to work hard at it inappropriate response will be to ignore it, to just wing the exam. That is like that with every situation. And when we come to God's word, that too is the reality for us. Whenever we encounter God's word, there is an appropriate response and an inappropriate response to God's word. 
whether you are a believer or not, there, you, you must respond to God's word when you encounter it. We as preachers know that we preach, we preach so that people will know God through his word, and it, must, and it is a call for a person's life to be changed every, through every message that we preach. A right response is to live your life according to what is revealed, while an inappropriate response is to refuse and reject God's word. We know those that as preachers that we really preach to the audience. Of, there's four types of people that we preach to, one of which is God. We preach everything for him and to him and for his glory. Uh, but they, unlike, the, unlike the other four, unlike the other three, God doesn't need to respond. You know, what we preach is only, for, is only to make his, him, is only to elevate him, is only to glorify his name. But the other three, which is actually going to be our outline this morning, is all, is all of us here. It, in fact, every church, every preacher in every church in the world preaches to the, these four audiences. But again, one of them is the Lord, and three of them is, is, is people, finite people. And the three categories is this, which will be our outline. There are people in the church that are non-Christians who don't know that they're non-Christians. These are false converts. There are people in the church that are genuinely Christians. And of course, there are those in the church who are not Christians. In every sermon that we preach, in every letter that Paul wrote, and, every, and not even just Paul, but all the apostles wrote, they're aware of that this is the audience, that everyone uh, that, that reads God's words either a, a false Christian, a genuine Christian, or a non-Christian. Paul tells us at the end of 2 Corinthians to test ourselves, see if we're in the faith, to examine so that we will know with assurance that we are saved. In this text, Paul addresses all three of the audiences, explains that what is an appropriate and inappropriate response when, we, when a person engages God's word. We'll go through the, this text and, and in each of this, these categories, and then there is a, we're going to see an appropriate and inappropriate response. So the first one is a non-Christian who think they are a Christian. We'll see that in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. And the second one is... Uh, Christians who are genuinely Christians, we'll see that in verse 18 to 21. And lastly, we'll see non-Christians who know that they're not Christians, chapter 6, verse 1 to 2. So our first point, non-Christians who think they are Christians. Look at verse 16. Notice that Paul writes, therefore, now this is there for, for a specific purpose. He's pointing, this is like a result of something that has happened before. What is he referring to? Look back up to verse 14, uh, he, Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us. If you understand that God has died for your sin, if you, have, if you truly understand that he has paid for your sins and he died for you and, and so that you may no longer uh, be dead but be made alive in Christ, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. If uh, Paul's here, uh, saying this first part here in that, he, as an apostle, no longer looks at people according to his fleshly desires or no longer to his own type of biases. Remember, Paul used to be a Pharisee. He used to be the Jew, the super Jew. He used to do, be able, he did everything. He had all the dietary laws, and you can imagine someone who had dietary restrictions and wanted to obey it when he sees people 
who do not obey it, these type of dietary laws, he, he judged them. He assumed that these people are gross and disgusting. Um, he uh, was a Jew, so then he had even a perception of Gentiles. He looked at everyone that were not Jews, and he looked down on them. And whatever uh, law that he made, they were all laws that were made by men. They were all fleshly uh, standards. And Paul's saying that if you're controlled by Christ, you no longer recognize people according to the flesh. Paul used to think that way. He used to look at people a certain way, but he no longer does that now because he is controlled by the love of Christ. Now, I wonder if that is us today. There are some people who claim to be Christians, yet the way that they perceive other people is no different than a non-Christian. Before you and I were saved, we saw people a certain way. When there's some, when there's an, when there's, we, we hear gossip. Do we, as as people who profess to be Christians, do we do we expel it? Do we stop gossip from spreading? Uh, I was reading a book recently on the if, the damaging effects of pornography in the mind of a person. Uh, when a person watches these things, it corrupts their mind. It, it, it makes them unable to have a actual normal, have normal relationships with people because they're so distorted. Their mind is so consumed by sin. Before you were a Christian, there's a certain way that you looked at people, whether it's from your, through your own selfish, sinful lust or your, for your own entertainments. But after you're saved, after you're a new Christian, the way you perceive one another should not be that way. You should l- be able to look at one another in a way that God intended us to look at them. And whatever avenue it may be, if you are a genuinely born-again Christian, there should, be a, there should be a difference in the way you look at people. It must be this way. A person who is truly saved will have a radical transformation in the way that they view man because they had a radical transformation when they encountered God. All of us, before we were saved, saw one another in a sinful way. Think about the way that you look at your fellow church member, churchgoer, or a fellow coworker, or a family member. All of these should change. Every time we see them, we recognize that that person is made in the image of God. You know, we have a right view. When you're in, when you're born again, you have uh, you have a accurate view of people. That's why in James chapter three verse nine it tells us that with the same with with the same tongue we bless the Lord and we curse man, even though man is made in the image of God. We have an accurate view of man because we have an accurate view of God, and that should be true. There are, there are people in our lives that will get in our nerves, both in and outside the church, and our respond as as genuine as new as new creatures should be that we should respond in love, because the love of Christ is what controls us. Yes, there will be people that offend us. Yes, there will be people that bother us. But our, 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 the way that we treat them, the way that we interact with them should be filled with love because we understand how much God has loved us. Who we were before we were saved were people who ultimately lived for themselves. A person who has truly trusted in God will trust also that God will change them. I heard this debate between uh, these two theologians over Bible translation. It's like such a nerdy seminary thing. Uh, but they were, they were debating over the word, the translation of the word belief or faith or believe and trust. Uh, this person argued that all the Bible translations should, trans, should use the word trust instead of believe. 
he believed that trust has, uh, the word belief has, has like a passive connotation, that you just kind of know truth as opposed to trust where you're actively engaged to it. Because um, he said that, well, even demons believe in God, but they don't trust in Jesus. And that's true, and there's, some impl- and there's true in that there are some implications of that. Person who trusts in God also trusts what God has said about how a person must respond to God's word. The only appropriate response to God's word is evident of a changed life. Notice in verse 16, in the middle of verse 16, that Paul writes, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Paul even writes that before he knew of Jesus Christ, but he knew him according to the flesh. Remember, Paul used to kill Christians. Paul used to go and slaughter and find and seek them out and destroy them. And he used to think that, oh, I'm killing the people that I'm destroying, that the God that they worship is not a true God. He had a wrong view of Christianity, a wrong view of Christ. But yet when he got saved, he no longer saw Christ that way anymore. He no longer views Christ according to the flesh. See, and this applies to us as well. Before we were saved, we viewed Christ a certain way. And if we are truly changed, then the way that we look at Christ should be different. There should be a drastic change between the old and the new. Perhaps some of us here today view Jesus as, as just a glorified Santa Claus. We just go to him and pray only when we need something. We don't see Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There isn't a reverence whenever we pray. There isn't a, um, a humbleness when we, when we go before his word. The way that we view Christ must be different. All of that change when we trust in the Lord. If you truly trust in the Lord, then the way that you view one another, the way that you view a fellow man, the way that you view God should be drastically different. If you view man and God has not changed since you've given your life to Christ, something is lacking your understanding of who God is. There must be a change. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Paul reminds us that the old self is gone. There is a, there is a transformed life. This builds on off the idea from verse 14. Again, if you're being controlled by the love of Christ, you are a new creature. The old has passed away. Notice that he writes, in Christ, in verse 17. If, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... There's a unity in Christ in every way. And there's no such thing as a person that's in Christ while still living in sin. Before we were saved, we were dead in our sin, and now we are alive in Christ. This word new here means it's completely new. It is not improved. It's not upgrading a house. It's not like I want to build something in the backyard and, uh, and you build it. No, it's a completely new blueprint, a new foundation, new house. It's not changing a car engine or adding a new paint on a car. It's a completely new car. That's the idea here. This is new. You are a new creature, a new creation. If you are saved, you're completely new, not improve your old self. Charles Spurgeon said this way, The scripture does not say you must be improved, but you must be born again. Christianity is not something that you add to your life. It is your life. On a side note in verse 17, you notice that Paul writes, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, this word he is, he is, is in, if you're using New American Standard, it's italicized. That means it's not there. Uh, the original, the translators of the NES use that to smooth out the Greek it's for, it's so that we can read it easier. 
But if you remove that and you see it from the original, it literally says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, a new creature. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creature. Scripture never assumes that a person is in Christ are still living in a life of sin. This is one of the phrases where we get the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration means that it's a, it's a new birth. It's completely changed. The old self had passed away. It was just passed away in the past tense. It's not slowly passing away. It's not slowly deteriorating. It's a completely new thing. Your old self, your old sinful desires, all your uh, old past uh, goals, they're all gone. They're passed away. And the new things have come. You are completely new. What Paul is getting at here is that a Christian that, that a Christian uh, is not becoming a new creature. Rather, they are a new creature. There is, no, there is such a thing as false repentance. As you, if you jump over to 2 Corinthians 7, 10, it talks about how there is a false sorrow. So there are people in the church who may feel guilty over their sin, but have not truly trusted in the Lord. How do you know if you truly have been regenerated? How do you know, how do you, well, the, the, to answer that question, is, is, I'll answer with another question. How do you view God and man? Has your, do you see God with reverence? Do you see your fellow man as people made in the image of God? This goes back to the greatest commandment, doesn't it? God's greatest commandment to us is that we need to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as ourself. The true evidence of genuine salvation is that your view of man and God has drastically changed. This is not perfection, but there is a progress as a new creature. You want to continue to love God and others. If your view of God and man hasn't changed, you need to consider, consider whether or not you are genuinely a new creature. There are many that are now in the church, they even serve in the church, and are, are in part of church life that have not truly repented. Some is because of pride. You know, they've been at the church for such a long time. They even gave to the church. They've been here for such a long time. And to admit that they are not a Christian at this point would be embarrassing. And some people's shame. You know, they they might have grown up in the church. They might have leaders in the church that they are children of. But out of shame and out of fear of man, they choose not to repent. But no matter what the reason is, it is better now that you repent. It's better now that you repent and be later separated from God completely. It's better to admit now that you are a false convert than for God to tell you to depart from him, for he never knew you. Now is the time for those who have not truly repented to repent. Now is the time for those who are not regenerated to ask the Lord to change them. The appropriate response is to test yourself and to repent now, and the appropriate response is to continue to, then, then it is to live a life that's a lie. That's the inappropriate response. The inappropriate response is to, to know that you're not a Christian and to continue living that lie. Not only is Paul addressing those who think they are saved, but even the Christians have the appropriate response to, to Scripture. The next group of people that Paul addresses are Christians who know that they're saved. Christians who know that they're saved. Verse 18 to 21. Verse 18. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
Paul begins by saying, now all things are from God. Some, some commentators think that this is a, a much more general sense, that God has created all things. And that is true. God has created all things. But I take it in more of a specific sense. And it's because of the context. The context talks about regeneration, talks about new birth, it talks about salvation. And I think this point, this, this verse here, points to the fact that all salvation, everything that comes with salvation, is from God. Christianity is about Jesus. The doctrine of salvation hinges on who Jesus Christ is. God reconciled us. God reconciled us through Christ to himself. Colossians 1, 20 to verse 22 reads, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. <coughs> Excuse me. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his, in his fleshly body through the death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. It's because of what God has done for us, we are given a ministry of reconciliation. We, and all that we have and all that we do, is an opportunity for that. You're made in a new you're made anew. You're, you're a new creature. You understand that you can do everything as an act of worship. Whether you're a student, whether you're working, whether you're retired, you can do all of these things as an act of worship. The, every aspect of your life is a ministry. You can use it as a ministry to reconcile uh, people to Christ. The Lord has given you an opportunity to go at wherever stage you are in your life to be a witness to non-believers. When we understand that this is the mission of the church, this is the objective of the church, that we will want others to receive the same grace from God. That is the mission for all of us. We must never forget that. All that we do is a means, to be a, is a means uh, by which God placed us so that we could win people to Christ. Because we're in ministry, it's, it means service. It has a military type of connotation. God rescued us before, and now we are in a rescue mission ourselves. Paul explained this further in verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, for he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Paul is explaining what he's expanding on what he said in verse 18. God reconciled the world to himself. He provided a way for man and God to be made right again, to be reconciled, to be put back together. Faith in Christ means that a person is no longer condemned for their sin. God no longer counted your sin against you. For he's not accounting. Not counting. It's an accounting term. Uh, this is where we get the doctrine of, of imputation. Uh, in the positive sense, the, the word counting, uh, it's a, in the positive sense, it's like if I did something good and then I get money in my account. If, let's say, I... Let's say if Pastor Henry hired me to babysit his kid for uh, three hours, and after three hours, he Venmos me. After, after he finds out his kids are alive and the house isn't burned down, he Venmos me like $15. Okay, you, thanks for keeping my kids alive for three hours. But that's a positive sense. That's like him, him, because I did something good, he transferred money into my account. In a negative sense, it'd be like, We'll use the same illustration with Pastor Henry and his kids. It would be like if, we, if I was babysitting his kids and I burned down his house, but his kids are alive, and he, instead of paying me, he gives me a bill and then also tell me that you're fired. But 
That's in a negative sense. It's, it's, it's putting something in our account that's saying that, okay, we need to take something from you. When Paul is using this word, he's using in the second one, the negative sense, that God no longer uh, counts us or, or gives us a bill for our sin. Paul's saying that when a person places their trust in, in Christ, God no longer charges them. In fact, God not only stops charging them, but puts money into their account. If you place your faith in Christ, God no longer puts you in a deeper debt or, or, or gives you a bill for how much you need to owe him, but rather he gives you money. He gives you the riches that belongs to Christ. The, the, the riches of salvation that belongs to the Lord, is, belongs to Christ, is now given to us. You will notice at the end of verse 19 that Paul writes, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. After we are saved and we understand what it means to be reconciled to God, God instructs us to go and make disciples. He does so through the word of reconciliation. It's the word of God that changes someone. It's, it's the preaching of God's word. It's the preaching and teaching God's word that person understands what God has to say, and it changes their hearts. The gospel and all that is attached to it are all that we have and all that we need to invite people to Christ. We are given the word of reconciliation, and we need to share it. Those of us who have truly come to know Christ, must be people who are willing to tell people about him through his word. We must be heralds of the gospel. Since we know the blessing of being reconciled, we want others to be reconciled to Christ as well. Since we know the richness of God's grace, how he gave us his righteousness, how we imputated into our account uh, the money that we don't deserve, we want others to receive this free gift as well. That is the appropriate response. The appropriate response is of knowing Christ to tell people about how great our God is. Look at verse 20. Therefore, again, therefore, looking back at all the things he know about being reconciled to the Lord, how things are not, no longer counted against us. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. As ambassadors of God, we represent the heavenly kingdom. It is our job as ambassadors to plead with others who are part of the kingdom of darkness to leave that kingdom and to join Christ in the kingdom of light. Sadly, in our modern world, especially even in our church, we neither have a we don't take hell or heaven seriously. If heaven is really as glorious and majestic and perfect in a place where there is no pain, no suffering, no tears. If that place is true, the way that the Bible describes it, if it's really true in our hearts and mind, we would want others to know about this. We would want to go and declare it to other people. Perhaps heaven is not as glorious in our minds as we'd like to be. Heaven is where Jesus is. That is the greatest thing, that our faith will become set. We get to be with Christ On the flip side, I don't think we take hell as serious either. We don't see hell as a place of eternal torment. We don't see hell as a place that is completely separated from God. We don't see hell as a place of, well, there's devoid of any hope. We sometimes just see hell as just a place where non-believers go. But yeah, and that is true. But it needs to be more than that. It's more than just that 
just because you reject God, you go to another room. That's not how, what hell is. Hell's place will be a place where there's eternal torment. There's no way of escape. We've spent every one sin that we've committed, it's an infinite consequence. And yet, that's a place that our, some of our friends and family might go if they do not know the Lord, or they will go if they do not know the Lord. And I don't think hell is as terrifying as it should be in our own hearts. Neither is heaven as glorious as it should be in our own minds as well. The appropriate response as Christians is to tell people of of what heaven and hell is. As ambassadors, we're warning them. We're telling people what uh, what the demands of the king is. Ambassador, back then, is similar to what what it is now. Um, I think our monitor we, we use ambassadors too but i think like prime ministers you know this is a, it's when a leader is unable to go himself he sends a representative and he sends one in their place and that person is just as good as if the leader of that nation went on themselves the ambassador is a stand-in for the leader in a sense all authority is given to this ambassador uh, and he's supposed to be treated as if it's the leader of that country and it's the same way as well. Christ told us when he gave us a great commission that he, will, he has all, all authority in heaven and earth that's given to us so that we can go and make disciples of all nations. We need to do that. And, and we have authority from God to go and call people to repentance. The ambassador does, does and just gives the exact message that it was given to him. They never do more. They never add more to God's word. They never exceed what is given this is what the exact image that Paul wants us to have in our minds. Because we are ambassadors of God. And notice that as though God were making an appeal through us. Every time when we're pleading with someone to repent, it's as if God is doing the pleading. I think sometimes we miss that when we do evangelism. We're not thinking about the fact that God is actually the one using us, speaking through us, so that people... Uh, should repent. We're crying out as if God is crying out. If you feel mournful, if you feel desperate, and understand that the Lord feels the same way. God doesn't wish that anyone perishes. You know, sometimes when we do evangelism, it's out of a selfish motive. I remember when I was young, I wanted my relatives to be saved just so that they could, they could accept me when I pray in, during mealtimes, so that they won't be mean to me. That's not the right reason, the right motive. You know, sometimes we have those types of motives as well. But the genuine and the true motives that we're, we're pleading with them. We want people to escape the wrath that is to come. That is our job. Our job as, an, as ambassadors is to point people to Christ. We tell them the message and we, we tell them this is the way to salvation. Jesus', Jesus message was for people to repent. And that is our message as well. John Piper describes ambassador this way. God's ambassadors are privileged pleaders begging their hearers to respond to truth. As ambassadors, our message is obvious. Look at verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is probably one of those famous verses in the Bible. It's it's the gospel. There's a few verses throughout the Bible. These are one of those verses where it's the gospel in one verse. Uh, so if you want to evangelize, this is one of those verses in, in John 3.16. Uh, and it's that. It's one of those popular verses for evangelism. Uh, Paul said that he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. This points to the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. Jesus', per, Jesus perfection is traded and given to us for our imperfections. There's no one on heaven 
and no one on heaven and earth that can reconcile us to God. There's not one person in all of creation that is able to do this. Isaiah 59 reads this, Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing to, in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and, no, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. There's no one else that can intercede us. There's no one that can, that can bring us completely to the Lord except for Jesus Christ. The only one that is qualified is Jesus because he's completely man and he's completely God. He's fully man and that, he, that means that he's, he, he, has, he understands our pain. He understands the fatigue. He understands being tempted. But yet he's fully God and that he is completely divine. And even the fact that he's divine means that when God pours out his infinite wrath onto, the, onto Christ, he's able to bear it all. Christ had to be both God and man, and yet he died for us. Only Jesus can pay that debt that we owe. Christians that are here today, understand that the more you know about Jesus, the more you study him, and it's on Sunday, on Bible study or Sunday school, or even when you're doing your own devotion, these things should make you Love Christ more. You should make you behold the greatness of our Savior. You should have a, an elevated view every week. Every time you hear about how great our God is, that should make you want to go, not only be equipped, but to know him and then also tell people about how great our God is. As you go to church, as you study God's word, the appropriate response is to internalize it and tell others about it. Now is a day to invite your loved ones to Christ. Now is a day to beg your friends to repent. Now is a day to make an appeal to your family members to turn from their sin and to turn to Christ. As ambassadors of Christ, now is the time to be heralds of the gospel truth. The unfaithful ambassador would be someone who knows what he needs to say when he goes to that foreign kingdom and chooses not to say anything. That is an unfaithful ambassador. And may none of us here today be found that way. That if Christ came back right now and he asked us, what do we use our time for? What do we place our, what do we invest our time in? That we can say that we use all the time that we have and every opportunity to be able to go and tell people about him. May, may we be found faithful in our as ambassadors of the Lord. Not only, does, not only is Paul addressing false converts and believers and how they need to appropriately respond to God's word, but lastly, Paul also addresses the non-Christians and how they must respond appropriately to God's word. Our last point, non-Christians who know that they aren't saved. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. In working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the day, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. At this point, Paul is directing his attention to the non believers in Corinth. And remember that this, the church of Corinth, that there's this mixed group of people in that there are non-Christians, there are Christians, there's false Christians. Just based on the language of this book, he's trying to talk to each and every single one of them. He's trying to encourage the Christians to, to, to continue living according to Scripture. He's trying to uh, tell non, uh, the false Christians to repent. He's trying to defend his apostleship. But at this point, he's talking specifically to those who do not know Christ. Paul said, notice that in verse 6, that he's working together 
with him. This is, again, referring to the fact that he's, he's being used by God. He's an instrument of the Lord to, to be an, an ambassador, to go and tell people of Christ. Being used by God to do and say the right things to get people to come to know the Lord. Paul's doing exactly what God has instructed him to do as an ambassador. He's relaying the message that God has in store for him. Paul's pleading with an urgent heart to, to those to not receive the grace of God in vain. Paul's warned them in the past of God's grace, and many of them still have not received Christ. You know, this, is, this is known as 2 Corinthians, but there's actually four, four uh, letters. We've, we don't know where the other two is, but this is one of the four. And he's, he's, met, he's, he's, he's written to them before. I mean, we have 1 Corinthians. Uh, he's written to them before. He's visited them before. So it's not like he doesn't know who they are. And, he's, and every time he's visited them, every letter, he's, he's he told them about Christ. He's warned them over and over again. And I'm imagining every time when Paul's writing that there's people like, oh, I, that one person that I was praying for, did he come to know the Lord yet? And he's writing with those people in mind, people who, who he's pleaded with, people that he's shared the gospel with, people he's begged, and yet he doesn't know. He, he isn't sure at the time because he's away from them. But he's writing with an urgent heart. He wants them to know he wants them to know Christ. There are many here today who know in their hearts the basic knowledge of the gospel. And there are even some here who grew up in the church who have not received Christ, even though they have heard the gospel over and over and over again. I think in our American culture, we t- uh, we've, we've heard the gospel in, in passing, even in passively. Uh, I say this because we have Christmas music now. Um, start, uh, one of the radio stations just kept playing these Christmas songs and I remember when the first Christmas song played Kelly texted me and was like oh, Christmas is here and it's like it's still Thanksgiving it's, it's, like, it's not here yet uh, still a month to go but there's a sense that even those Christian songs you listen to I think one every five of those songs talks about Jesus it talks about, they're actually biblical songs like stuff that we will actually sing here you know they're, they're Christian songs that, that, that exalts the the, the the exalt Christ that talks about his virgin birth and why he's here. That's a great thing to have. It's a, it's a strange type of privilege that we have in the, even in the Bay Area, which is highly secular, to play Christian songs on the radio. There, and, and with that, we know that, that they, people have heard of the gospel. You know, they know of it just through the songs. Even, there are non-Christians that would, that would sing Christian songs. I don't know if they know what they're reading, but they're exposed to it. You know, we live in a world that is not devoid of, of, of what uh, the gospel has to say. By and large, our culture as a whole has heard of Jesus, and they are without excuse. There are many people in the world and in churches, uh, some are even among us today, who have come to church for the wrong reason. Yes, our church welcomes you, but coming to church it's to worship God. It's to know him more. It's to live for him. It's to sing praises to him. It's about him. Church is not a social club of nice people. The, the church is a place for, it's not a, it's not a place for you to go find a spouse. The church is not a place for you to learn of morals. It's not a place for entertainment. First uh, Timothy 3 tells us that church is a pillar of truth. That we hold truth here. And the greatest of truth that you need to know is that Christ came and died for you. That you need to repent. That life is short. You don't know when you're going to die. 
do not receive God's grace in vain. A person who receives God's grace in vain is someone that would hear God's word preached on a regular basis, and they'll say, next time, or soon, or another time, maybe next week. And some people have, have, set, have refused an invitation thousands of times over, yet still, still, the abundance grace of God said, now is the acceptable time. There are people here who have just said, I will wait. I'll wait once, I get, once I'm done with my, my soul, once, once I, I get through my youth, then I, will, uh, then I will repent. But yet there's no assurance that you even make it to an old age. There are many people who've died young. And if you are one of those people who do not know Christ now, you need to repent. You need to, count, you need to be worried the fact that you do not know whether or not you have a tomorrow to repent. Look at verse 2 of chapter 6. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on that day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is, day of, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul uses this Old Testament reference to point his, the people in Corinth to remember what the Israelites were, were like. In, uh, just like the Israelites who knew of salvation and chose to de- uh, delay repentance, so are the people in Corinth right now, at, the, at, at Corinth, who choose to reject it. And there are some here today that are the same way. You're like the Corinthians, and, you're, and the Corinthians were like the Israelites in the sense that you know what salvation is. You know what it takes for, for you to be made right with God. You know what it means to be able to be reconciled to him. But you are delaying it. God, at the time, raised up Isaiah to declare the salvation, and they refused. And then in the New Testament, in, in this context here, Paul was raised up by God to tell people of salvation, and there's some that refuse, and God has raised up different preachers, even to today, that are calling people to repent, and they still refuse. And we're hoping that at every message that we, pre- that we preach behind this pulpit, every small group, every Bible study, that is saturated with God's truth enough so that you know how to be made right with God. Paul warned them before, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells them not to make the same mistakes that Israel made. Israel knew God's word, and they had unbelief. They chose not to believe God's word, even though they knew God's word, even though God's word was presented before them. Even though they had an apostle, even though they had all this miraculous gift, they chose not to believe, just like the Israelites of old. Today, we are in that same, we're similar in that we have God's word, the whole canon of scripture. We see all of what God has to offer us. We even know all of the consequences of our sin. We have the whole canon of Scripture. We're one of the few generations in all of existence to have the full canon of Scripture. You know, this is greater than the, the miracles that's presented. But yet, even with all of that, there are those who still choose to reject God's word. They still say things like, let me know, I'll, I'll believe in God if he shows up. Well, that we know in Scripture that isn't the case. God has shown up multiple times in the past, yet many has rejected him. It has nothing to do with, with, with intellectual knowledge or how much you're exposed. It has everything to do with your own sin, that you need to repent, you need to turn from those things and trust in God today. Notice the small detail here. Uh, before the reference to the Old Testament, Paul writes, for he says, it is God that is speaking. It is God that is making the plea. Paul is doing what the prophets of old has done. He spoke on God's behalf. God is the only one that's calling us to repentance. 
We understand that we are being saved by God from God. On one hand, God has all of your sins. He knows every single thing that you've done and every single uh, consequence of that sin it's in his, his, his one hand. And he, and, you, and he has also the judgment of, of his wrath on this one hand. And on the other hand, he also offers grace. He gives you a way for you to be made, reckon, to be made right with him. You're being saved from God and that he's the one that's going to be uh, tormenting you in hell. He's going to be the one that's punishing you. And you're being saved by God and that God is the only one that can save you. That seems to be the, that's the paradox of, of salvation, that God is the one that you're being saved from. And the only one to be uh, saved from God is by God himself. Paul repeats this warning twice. This is to let everyone know that if those who hear the gospel, that they need to repent now. Because death is imminent. It will come. The sand in the hourglass of life has not run out yet. Don't waste whatever time you have left toying, entertaining, fighting, resisting, wandering, debating whether or not the gospel is true. The gospels are true. Turn to Christ now. Hebrews 9.27 reads this, And inasmuch as it is, it is appointed for men to die once. After this comes judgment. As, a, as non-Christians that are here, there is nothing that you can offer God today. There's nothing. You can give money in the offering plates. You can sing songs loudly. You can even be attentive through the entire sermon. But that doesn't please the Lord. The only thing that you can offer to the Lord is a broken and contrite heart. The only thing you can offer that is acceptable to God is acknowledging that there is nothing that you have that can get you into heaven. The only admission that you have to heaven is an admission that you need him. Your records of good, of all the good works you've done, will not even, pay, will not even compare to the record of sin that you've committed against him. The only acceptable thing you can do, the only thing that's acceptable to God right now, is to acknowledge that you need him to save you. The present moment is the only thing you are certain of. You cannot do anything about your past, but you can prepare for eternity now. Never assume that there is a later. Some people think that they want to achieve certain success, that they'll turn to Christ. If, I make certain amount, if there's a certain amount of money in my bank account, some things, if I, if, I just do, if I just live out a life of sin just for a little bit longer, then I'll, I'll, I'll repent. I'll get over Sin will become boring to me, and then I'll, I'll, I'll turn to God. But there's no such thing. You, there's no certainty that, that people, that you reach that old age. Those moments may never come. There are many people in hell today that wish that they have taken that moment. That they wish that if they, when the moment they heard of God, the gospel, not just one, the first time, but the thousandth time, that they would repent. They would have repented. There are many people in hell that are regretting right now because they did not seize the opportunity to repent. And I encourage you, non-believer, if you are here, you do not know him, that this is the opportunity now that you have to turn. I don't wish that anyone perish, just like the Lord doesn't wish anyone to perish. But, I'm, but it's, it's, it's horrifying to me to, for someone in hell knowing, oh, I've been told this. I know that this was coming, and I did not avoid it. If you are here and you do not know the Lord, 
I plead with you, just like Paul pled with the Corinthians, just like the prophets pled with the Israelites, to repent. Whether you are a false Christian, a genuine Christian, or a non-Christian, there is an appropriate response for you this morning. Just as Paul pled on behalf of the Lord to examine yourself, to test yourself, to see if you're in the faith, so too is my intention. If you are a false Christian, if you're a person who have not truly come to the Lord, know the Lord and claim that you are a Christian, examine yourself. How do you view God now? Now that you claim to be a Christian, how do you view God? What's your view of man? What's your view of your fellow man? If you are a genuine Christian, you're an ambassador of the Lord. My question for you is, how faithful are you in declaring the message that is given to you? You have a stewardship. How, how well are you doing in terms of proclaiming the gospel? And if you're a non-Christian today, my, my, my question to you is a very simple one. And that is, would you receive Jesus this morning? Use this time to reflect on which one of the categories you're in and understand that there is an appropriate and an inappropriate response. And how you respond today, how you respond now, will have eternal consequences. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have now to know your word. Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray, Lord, that you will humble their hearts to see how beautiful you are in dying for us and the ugliness of the cross reveals the beauty of your love. And Lord, may we, as we go about our day, um, for those who us, of us who have the privilege to be called ambassadors, may we be bold and courageous in sharing the gospel to those who do not know you. Lord, thank you for this time. In your son's name I pray. Amen.